is on. Good. Good morning. Uh, my name is Ken Jenkins, and I'm an elder here at Covenant Church. I'm so glad to see everybody here today. Uh, we want to welcome you and uh, also welcome you to uh, have lunch with us after the service, and we're going to have a baptism before that, so uh, it's a big day, exciting day. We're finishing up our series today on the book of James, and we're covering uh, chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Kids may be dismissed. Um, the theme of these verses uh, is patience in the face of suffering. And thank you for groaning inwardly and not out loud. <laughs> suffering is not something we embrace freely. In fact, we go out of our way at all costs to avoid it. Just human nature. It's entirely reasonable. But I promise you, suffering is going to come your way in life. And as a follower of Christ, even more so. God knows our suffering. He feels our suffering. He wants to walk with us in our suffering. Work all things together for good, for his purposes, even suffering. And you may not like this, but he actually can be the cause of our suffering. Please pray with me. Lord, we belong to you. You are good. You are merciful. You are compassionate. You love us. And you sent your only Son, our Lord Jesus, who lived and died and lives again to rescue us from a broken world, our broken selves, and from death itself. Pray you'd speak to us today from your word. Give us understanding by your spirit. We give you praise and glory in his name. Amen. So before we get into the text, I want to show you something. That is the corner of my yard, and that is pampas grass. And it is awesome. It's tall, it's decorative, it's majestic. It's really the envy of the whole neighborhood. I like it. So, I've been thinking, though, of getting rid of it. So we're going to take a vote. I don't want you to vote hastily. I want you to think about it. All in favor of getting rid of it, raise your hand. Okay. All in favor of keeping it, raise your hand. All right. get back to this later. <clears throat> now, James, in order to be exegetically correct here, if we look back at previous parts of his letter, he's writing to brethren regarding the suffering they're experiencing because in many cases, they are experiencing oppression, which is inflicted by those who have power. This is not anything new. The oppression of the powerless by the powerful is not new, and God detests it. In chapter 1, James reminds us that true religion is championing the cause of the powerless. 
widows and orphans. In chapter 2, he reminds us not to despise the poor, the powerless, and give special attention to the powerful when he says, who he says, draw you before the judgment seats. So living in a litigious society is not new either. In chapter 3, he warns us, brethren, be not many masters for those who seek power, knowing we shall receive the greater condemnation. Those who have power are judged by God regarding how they use that power. In chapter 4, he has a warning for the wealthy entrepreneurs of the day who have plans for expansion and are boasting of it. And to paraphrase what he's saying, he's saying, remember, anything you have is from God. Consider first his will and use your power and wealth for God in his service and to aid the powerless, not to manipulate and exploit them for your own profit. So that's the context of suffering that James is really speaking to. And I wanted to establish that uh, because I'm going to depart from it a little bit. So let's read from James. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Farmers know what their crops require. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And by that, he doesn't mean judgment in terms of salvation. He means that God judges us in how we treat one another. And if we're critical of one another and we judge one another, God holds us to that judgment. There's the verses uh, that Christ refers to. How can you take a log out of somebody else's eye? Or how can you take a, what is it? Thank you. How can you take a speck out of somebody else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye? That's kind of a pretty amazing example. So the church in that day expected the imminent return of the Lord. And in verse 8, he says, because the Lord's coming is near, and don't grumble against one another, the judge is standing at the door. I don't want to stray too far afield into the forest of eschatology, uh, which is the study of last things, um, because I'll still be up here and you'll be eating your lunch in the gym. Um, But just to say that the church had an expectation that the Lord was coming back any day. Now, chronologically, they were wrong. It's 2,000 years later. But the imminence of God's return is still here. It's still with us. We still carry it. We still should regard the return of the Lord as imminent because we don't know. So take, it says, brothers and sisters, take as an example of patience in the face of suffering the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So here's the first example of patience and suffering that he gives us. People don't always want to hear the truth. Even if you speak it in love, they will not always welcome it gladly. For the prophets, that often meant a rock in the face. But it says that we can glory in our sufferings because we, this is Romans 5, 3 through, 3 through 5, 
Because we know suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given us. Suffering for the Christian has a purpose, has meaning. And we know in life we all experience, along with joy and pleasure, we will experience suffering and death. That's part of life. The worst thing that people fear in terms of suffering, I think, though, is needless suffering. Or suffering that doesn't seem to have any purpose or meaning at all. In fact, I think sometimes people fear suffering actually more than they fear death. So let's consider some different kinds of suffering that we might experience. We can experience suffering because of sin. God disciplines us as a loving father. The school of hard but compassionate knocks, I would call it. In Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 6, he talks about, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Who's struggling against sin here? I hope everybody. That's suffering. When you're struggling against sin, you're suffering. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. That rebuke comes time, sometimes in the form of suffering. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So if you're receiving discipline, it's because God loves you and he regards you as a son and a daughter. And the discipline, the suffering in that regard is meant to be educational. And I remember the first time I spanked one of my sons, not Gregory. I wept. I wept. And God doesn't delight in disciplining us, but he knows it's for our good. So it says, endure this hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have had human fathers who have disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. And what that means is human fathers discipline their children for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they're upset. Maybe they're in a bad mood. Whatever. Not always the best of reasons. Not always the purest of reasons. We're fallible. But God always disciplines us for our good. In order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, though, it produced a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet 
so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Sometimes what we think is the devil at work is in fact the unrecognized hand of a loving father. Second kind of suffering we can experience because of the fall. Everything is broken. Everything in the world is broken because it's out of fellowship with God. It's out of sync with God, its creator. There will be a day God fixes all that, but it's not today. And we live in a broken and fallen world. We're no longer under the curse of Genesis because we're in Christ, but we experience the effects of it every day in a world that's broken that we live in. Third kind of suffering that we can experience is to bring God glory. And we'll see this in a minute in the story of Job. We can, in our suffering, be privileged to share the suffering of Christ. Because we're followers of Christ, we must all often be uncompromising and intolerant about certain things. And tolerant acceptance of all things is the religious dogma of our age. So when you are intolerant and uncompromising, no matter how nice you are about it, you're going to suffer. And Jesus promised us that. John 15, 18, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And if the world hates you, you're going to suffer. They are going to make you suffer. And if this hasn't happened yet, it will. Give thanks and trust God when it does. However, a note about suffering for God. You can be intolerant and yet compassionate. You can be uncompromising and yet gracious. And God will teach you how to do this. Largely through the suffering you're going to experience when you do it wrong. In 1 Peter, it says it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. In other words, if we stand up for the truth, if we're living our lives for God, following Christ, we're going to come into friction and conflict with the world, who has a whole different set of values. And if you suffer for that and you endure it, this is commendable. This is something that God... um, blesses and and approves of. But sometimes we suffer because we're idiots. We behave ourselves badly. We are insensitive to people. And in that case, it says, if you suffer for that reason, you don't get any credit. So we need, to, we need to understand sometimes. Sometimes we think we're suffering for God, but really uh, we need to really examine what it, what it is that's causing the suffering in our lives. It talks about being patient. Patient in the, fate of suffering, in the face of suffering. So what are we being patient for? What are we waiting for when we're suffering? What we're waiting for for all those who have faith in Christ, 
as we're waiting to see God's mercy and compassion. Suffering is temporal. Suffering lasts, as it says in Hebrews, for a little while. We don't get to establish how little that while is, but it's a little while in comparison to eternity. God's mercy and compassion is everlasting. So, regardless of if if you voted to save the pampas grass or not to save it, you you were making your vote really based on pretty limited information. I told you how much I loved it, all about its merits and everything. But one thing you may not have noticed is it was mostly lifeless and dead. It was brown. It looked good. And also your vote really didn't matter. And I'll tell you why. Because it's my pampas grass. It belongs to me. And I know what's best for it. You belong to God. We were singing earlier. We were singing, singing, I am yours and you are mine. We love the part that you, God, are mine. But I think sometimes we don't appreciate fully what the I am yours part means. We belong to him. He is sovereign. He is merciful. He's compassionate. But it doesn't always appear so. When you're waiting for something, when you're suffering and waiting for something, you're waiting for God. You're waiting for His mercy and His compassion to be revealed. We're going to get into Job a little bit. There's a a verse in Job that says, But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering, and he speaks to them in their affliction. God wants to speak to you when you're suffering. Go to him. He is there. He's ready to receive you. He is ready to speak to you. He is ready to comfort you. We often try to figure out, and wrongly, a definitive reason for whatever it is we're suffering. Or worse yet, to explain in detail to someone else why they are suffering and what they should do about it. If you read the book of Job's, um, the classic there is Job's friends. Job's friends had it all figured out. And they were going to let Job know exactly why he was suffering and what he should do about it, etc. Sometimes we don't have an answer for suffering. And we don't need to. That answer sometimes only lies in the heart and the mind of God and eternity. Rather, we need to come alongside people in their suffering, do what we can to relieve it, encourage them in their faith, and be of company and comfort to them. Sometimes that's all you can do. I'm not saying you can't ever understand suffering in your life. If you're suffering, ask God, what's this about? What are you doing, Lord? But we all understand suffering only from our human point of view, not from God's point of view. We can't. 
That's why it says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So our understanding of suffering in this life is always tempered by the fact that we don't have God's perspective. And that's why we often misjudge God. We don't have His perspective. So, back to James. As you know, we count those blessed who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So let's look at what happened to Job. Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a number of servants, and was the, he was the greatest man among the people of the East. This guy was on top of the world. And we're given the extensive an, animal inventory here as an example of that, because in the ancient world, animals were wealth. It's actually true even today. I was in Kenya a few years ago with the Maasai in southern Kenya. We were building this bridge. And uh, I was talking to one of the young guys. They don't eat their cows. It would be like taking a bite out of a stack of $100 bills for us. Because their cows are their wealth. And so this is given to show Job was a wealthy man, very powerful man. In fact, one funny story, there was... uh, Andrea Clark was over there visiting and was with the friend of mine that was building the bridge. And um, a couple of the young guys were kind of interested in her, and and he wanted to put them off. So he went over to them and quietly went, Nine cows. And they went, Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they give cattle as a dowry when. Anyway. <laughs> so. Job's sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Hey, nice brothers. They'd invite their sisters over, party with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Then one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. So all of a sudden, the curtains of heaven are pulled back here a little bit, and we get to peek inside the throne room of God. This is an, it's an amazing thing in Scripture. You get these little glimpses into the realm of God in, his, in heaven. So they came to present themselves before God, and Satan came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, eh, from roaming around the earth, going back and forth on it, causing trouble. That's what I do. That's how I roll. This raises like a number of questions. (laughs) Like, did the angels come like monthly or weekly um, for like a review of some sort? Or are they being, is this the early morning dispatch where God sends them out? You know, I don't know. It's it's just interesting when, when you see these things. And what was Satan doing hanging out with them? And how did they feel about that? It's like, you know, it said he came with them. And, and God is like, uh, Satan, what are, where, where have you been? Like, what have you been up to? Of course, God knows exactly where Satan's been and what he's been up to. So, it's interesting. 
So he goes on to have this conversation with Satan. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright and a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan responds, hey, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him, his household and everything he has, and you blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land? But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. So Satan is saying, yeah, Job loves you, but just for what you give him, just for the good that he can get from you, So the Lord says to Satan, very well, then take everything he has in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and I'm sure he kind of went out going, ha, 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 ha. Because now everything that Job has is in his power. So then one day, Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabians attacked and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, the first messenger, another messenger came in and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up all your sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came in and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels, and made off with them, put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. These were Job's precious children. And God had just crushed them. Allowed them to be crushed. Is there a difference? How can this be? How can this happen to a man to whom God's own testimony was? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. This is God's testimony about him. And yet this horrible set of things, events, just happened to him. He lost everything. What was Job's response? He got up and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I don't want to get too far afield here. Job is a rich and very beautiful book. It's poetic. It's huge in its scope. It's got 42 chapters. It reveals a lot about human nature, God's person and character. That opening scene is a bit like the tale of two cities. It was the worst of times. It was the best of times. And we could talk a lot about the theological implications of the story in terms of God's sovereignty and our response. 
We don't have time. James is drawing our attention to the end of the book. And on the way there, there's another beautiful verse in chapter 19, 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. There's times in our lives when our suffering can be so severe, so painful, so overwhelming. All we have to hang on to in the entire world is our faith that our Redeemer lives. And we can hope in Him and wait for His mercy and compassion. So let's pick up the story of Job at the end of chapter 42. Verse 10, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Gemma. And the name of the second one Keziah. And the name of the third Kiran Haputch. Any of you ever considered calling your daughter Kiran Haputch? <laughs> and in the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. What God is doing is not always obvious as we observe it from our perspective with our limited knowledge in the midst of the suffering that we're going through. We have to wait for the end of the story. Play that other video. This is what happened to my pampas grass after I set it on fire. You'll notice it's green and it's full of life, whereas it was dead. And sometimes that's what God is doing with us. He's burning away certain things so that life can come forth. And at the time he does it, it doesn't always look like he loves us. It looks like he's abandoned us. Had you seen me set the match or strike the match that set my pampas grass on fire, you would have definitely questioned whether I loved it. And yet you have to wait till the end of the story. You have to wait and see what God is doing and trust in Him. As James says, we count it blessed. Those, we count as blessed those who have persevered. And the important thing is what God finally brought about in the life of Job. 
We don't get to set the time frame when it comes to suffering. We don't get to say how long or how much God in his infinite wisdom and mercy and compassion does. We wait for him and we look to him for that mercy and compassion to be demonstrated. In, in um, these verses it's, uh, in Peter, it says, Be alert and be of sober mind, your enemy The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The way the devil seeks to devour us is to lie to us. He can only devour with a lie, the lie. And the lie is that God does not care for you. He does. And that he's not near to you when you suffer. He is. It says... We should resist him, the devil, standing firm in our faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Same kinds of suffering. Everyone here is suffering in one way or another. For one reason or another. But all of that suffering, the scriptures teach us, works together for good. For those who love God. For those who are called according to his purposes. So as we suffer, it says to know this, that the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. We want to be a church that understands how to support one another in both joy and in suffering. Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's the kind of church that we want to be. In our, surf, in our suffering, we want to press into God and find the comfort, encouragement, and strength that He has for us by His Spirit who's with us. And then it says, Our God who comforts us in all troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from Him. As we learn to find God in our suffering, we'll be able to help other people find God in their suffering. And God wants us to. And it really is the kind of church that we want to be. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you are compassionate and merciful to us. That we are yours. That we belong to you. We are your plant. We are your planting. All of us individually and this church. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord. Into the hands of a loving Father. Into the hands of a God who cares deeply for us. Who loves us. And who wishes our good. And we wait for you, Lord. We wait for you and we look to you to speak to us and to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.